You know, I have come to realize that our human perspective is naturally just a bit jaded. <laughs> it seems that when we look at people, we are kind of bent on seeing the negative. It was Abraham Lincoln who once said, if you look for the bad in people, expecting to find it, you will. And, and no one escapes this. The people you work with, your family, your children, your church family, we all fall under the, the eye of negative scrutiny. It even happens in marriage. When a married couple starts to focus on each other's flaws, there, there's two people who fell deeply in love with each other. Uh, there were even times in their life where they didn't think they could, they could survive by being apart. But now that you're married and, and now that you've gotten comfortable, many married people only dwell on the negative things in their relationship. But this negativity doesn't just apply to people. It can even happen on your job. When you were hired, you worked harder than anybody else because you wanted to prove yourself. You wanted to move your way up the, the success ladder, but now you realize that you're not working for a perfect place and you're not working for a perfect boss and your outlook has changed and now you find yourself only thinking about the negative things that go on where you work. It can even happen in the church. When we overlook the things that God is doing, while focusing on what you perceive he isn't doing. It even happens at your home. When you come home from work at night and the kids are fighting or the house is a mess, you let negativity take over. Our human nature is such that it is so easy for us to see and to think the worst in most any person or any situation. And it happens simply because that's where our focus lies. And therefore, it becomes quite normal to walk into a church or, or a business or a job or even your own home without seeing only the negatives. But my friends, when you take on this kind of a mindset regarding the things of God, or should I even say the things that God is calling you to do, it can be tragic. And this morning, as we continue in our series titled The Blessing of Obedience, we are gonna discover that this is precisely what Abraham does. It seems all he could see at this particular juncture was the negative. Now we know from the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12 that God has called Abraham to go to the promised land. We also know that Abraham journeys right up to the border of Canaan but he sees that there's a famine going on in, in the land. And, and uh, he says to God, or you know, he, he's thinking, if he doesn't say it, I'm sure he's thinking, wait a minute, God, you're asking me to go into this place of promise, this promised land, and there's a famine? Believe me, I don't think you want me to enter the promised land where you're telling me that the promises are gonna require faith and commitment and sacrifice on my part. Now you're telling me you are, I have to work at this thing called the promised land? Well, I think I'm just gonna take a little bit of a detour and go against your will, God, and I'm gonna go down to Egypt instead. And that's what Abraham does. 
He heads off to Egypt instead. Why? Because his perspective was such that all he could see was the negative. All he could see were the extreme drought conditions that were going on at that time. And as I read his story, I want to call out Abraham and say, hey, pal, don't do this. This is a very critical time in your life. You're in chapter 12 and you can literally get to the promised land before verse 10 even begins if you're obedient with God. But as we learned last week, Abraham wastes his time and his money and his reputation. And we even joked a little bit last week about how both Abraham and Jonah would probably prefer some of the parts of their life story to be read a little bit differently than they're spelled out in the Bible because they are not so proud of all the things that that they have done, those things that went against God's will for their lives. But it's in their book nonetheless, and we read it time and time again. And I don't know if you've ever looked at it quite this way or not, but each of our lives is a book that is still being written. Some of you are in the middle of writing a love story, while others of you are in the middle of a writing an action-packed adventure. Some of you are writing a mystery novel. Sadly, some are developing into a horror story. (laughs) But the truth is, most all of us have had some dramatic and, and scary events written in our book. But the moments that that we are least proud of are when we completely disregard God. And sadly, those moments are written in our books as well for all to see. But at some point, we have to come to a pivotal chapter. There has to become a chapter in the book of our life when we finally get serious with God and we begin to be led by God and his spirit. Well, Abraham has such a moment. And when it's when he goes back to a place called Bethel. And that's what I'm titling my sermon today. Go back to Bethel. You see, no matter where you are today, it's not too late. It is never too late. God wants to move you into the promised land where you can turn a new page. And when you do, it allows you to look back And you can say to yourself, wow, those were some embarrassing chapters that that I was writing, but look at my life now. Look at what God has done. I am truly living a blessed life. The point that I want to make this morning is very, very simple. Some of us haven't yet experienced that pivotal chapter in our life yet. Some of you are literally this close to entering into the promised land. But the enemy very strategically and very seductively is hoping to divert God's direction for your life. And he does it through distractions, one right after another, and they all have a way to get you off a course because if Satan can get you off course just 10 or 20 verses in the book of of your life, the next thing you know is your book of life is reading a whole lot differently than you really want it to be read, amen? So just like Abraham, or just like God asks Abraham, the question dying to be asked this morning is, how long are you going to hang around in Egypt? Well, I'm not in Egypt, Pastor David. 
That's absurd. Of course you're not in Egypt, but there are people here today and people who are watching online who are in a place contrary to where God desires you to be right at this moment. I'm talking about in this building. I'm talking about where you are in your Christian journey. You know, biblical scholars submit that the Hebrew scriptures are filled with symbols and emblems and, and characters. And they all parallel the people and the places and the events of our life. They are what we refer to as types, which are real life examples or, or accurate models of a place or a person or a situation. And if you dig deep enough, you can find your life story being played out in the scriptures. And in today's story, Egypt is a type of the world. The, the promised land is a type for the place where we see the fulfillment of God's promises in our life. So Abraham is being distracted by Egypt, or the world, from experiencing the promises and the blessings of God. Pharaoh is a type of the enemy of God, holding God's people in bondage. Moses is a type of Jesus, the great deliverer. The children of Israel are those governed by God and are being held back by the enemy, Pharaoh, from entering into the promised land, just like Satan does who, when he seeks to hold us back from living the blessed life. So when you lay all the pieces of the puzzle together in your book of life and you connect all of them and you align all of them, you begin to clearly see that God is doing something amazing. And the truth is, in the same way that God was leading Abraham, he's leading you and I today. And we cannot afford, folks, to take any detours. So how long will you live in Egypt? You see, by taking a detour into Egypt, you're being held back from God's blessings and his provision. There are those who started out with God, but then something happened along the way and you decided, I, I can't do this. I can't walk into the promised land. I've got to go back to Egypt. And yet you're here today. Why is that? Because Egypt is Egypt. And in Egypt, you will never see or experience the power of God. In Egypt, you will, you will, you will never enjoy the promises of God or experience the, the peace of God because whenever you are in Egypt, you're going backwards. You're going in the wrong direction. And Jesus is crying out to everyone within the sound of my voice today saying, come back. Come back out of Egypt. You spent way too much time in the world, in a world that has no regard for me, God says. It's time to come back home. Well, that's exactly what Abraham does. If you'll look on the screen at Genesis 13, one through four, it says this, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. 
Bethel means house of God or place of God. And Bethel is where Abraham goes back to. So Bethel is a type as well. Now please understand, Bethel is not merely a physical place or destination for for Abraham. Bethel is a type for a place where God was discovered or where God is. And I hope and I pray that all of you have a Bethel in your life. For some of you, your Bethel is this church. It's because when you come here, you experience God, you are refreshed and you are recharged as you experience his presence. You come here and your life is touched by God through worship and through the written word and it has been a place of true transformation for you. Others of you have other places that you go to to seek God and it is what I would call your Bethel. Whenever I get discouraged in ministry, I go back to the call that God placed on my life and and I remember it and that is my Bethel. But everyone needs a Bethel, a place to go to be reminded of, of God's goodness and God's faithfulness in your life. If you ever find your faith getting stale, if you find that you've lost your zest for God, you need to go back to your Bethel. And for those who've been living in Egypt, God is now calling you back to Bethel, just like he did with Abraham. Because at Bethel, you are given perspective. At Bethel, you are reminded where it all started. And at Bethel, you once again meet God. And there are some things that I wanna share with you this morning, things that you need to know that will make this Bethel experience even a better experience than it was before. So look at me, if you will, it'll be up on the screen at Genesis 13, verses three and four. It's a part of what I already read to you. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The first thing you need to know is this. Bethel is a place of welcome. I want you to notice that he's already been there. And he experienced God in that place. But he departed from his experience and he went wandering instead into Egypt. But now he comes back. And God wants you to know something this morning. You are always welcome to come back home. And as the pastor of this church, let me also say, you are always welcome here. Now, some of you are not really touched by that statement because you haven't been living in Egypt. But there are some folks here today who haven't been here for a while. Recently, someone came up to me who I hadn't seen in literally months. And I asked, where have you been? And that person started to explain to me. And the way they spoke, I I could sense that there was some guilt And there was some shame going on that they had just dropped out of sight. I didn't ask that question, and I never asked that question to make anybody feel uncomfortable. I asked them because I miss seeing them, and I'm concerned for your spiritual welfare when you just drop out of sight. And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready one morning, some just random morning, and you pop into my head, and I go, where is that person? I haven't seen them in a long time. You see, when you're in Egypt... Things go on 
that are embarrassing. Sin happens. And as usual, sin brings forth shame. And my heart breaks for people who who are ready to come back, but in their shame, they think God doesn't want them back. But church, that is so far from the heart of our Heavenly Father. Let me prove it to you. Many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Young man asked his father for his, his inheritance early so that he can go out and he can live life on his own terms. He wants to sow some wild oats, as it were. He wants to experience everything that Egypt has to offer. So his loving father, although obviously concerned and and knowing what awaits his son, he grants his son's request. And he gives him his inheritance early, and he sends him out on his way. But like any loving parent, probably a day didn't go by when that man wasn't praying for God's protection over his wayward son. You know the story. And it's a typical story. It happens every single time. The son was lured by sin, and he spends his entire inheritance on a lascivious lifestyle. He blew every dime he had. And then a famine came upon the land to make it even worse, and he began to be in tremendous need. So he gets a job feeding pigs, feeding swine. And it was there that he realized that the swine were eating better than he was. And he comes to his senses, you know, one of those moments when, when, when you have crystal clear clarity. We don't have that very often, but God gives us those moments. And in Luke 15, 17, it says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He decides to return to his father, and his plan is to simply admit that he's no longer worthy to be called this man's son. And he even rehearsed the words that he's gonna speak to his dad. Please, dad, just let me be one of your servants because I'm sick and tired of living in Egypt. There's that negativity that I was talking about earlier. That's exactly what our minds do to us all the time. This son is thinking the worst. He, He was thinking that he needed to grovel before his father and beg and plead for forgiveness and for acceptance. You see, our minds concoct all kinds of scenarios of how things are gonna happen. And every one of them, I guarantee you, are void of the true essence of God's love. So here's his father who would daily stand on his land looking at the horizon to see if his wayward son might be heading home once again. But then there's this one day when he actually sees the son walking towards home. Luke 15 verse 20 says this, And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it 
and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Another translation says they began to celebrate. Look at how verse 20 started. But when he was still a great way off. Some of you are physically here today. But spiritually speaking, you're still a long way off. There's a part of you that is saying, I want to come back to Bethel, but I don't feel like I can because there's this and that going on. You're wondering if I do come back, will God really accept me? Will God really love me and care for me? Well, let me tell you something this morning. You being here today, even though spiritually speaking, you may be a long ways off, is a picture of our Heavenly Father chasing you down. And his desire is to throw his loving arms around you and to kiss you and to love you and to bless you. In fact, anyone who is considering coming back, let me remind you of something. God never moved. You did. He's been waiting patiently for you. You're the one who went off on a, on a binge. You're the one who went off on some craziness that you had to go back to. The Bible says like a, like a dog goes back to its vomit. We do that. Our sinful nature is to go back to our vomit, to go back to the stuff that we were saved from. And even though you've been in Egypt, your father has been watching you. He's been waiting. He's been checking the horizon every single day and wondering, is that my son? Is that my daughter? Are they coming back? Oh, look, you're still a long way off, but I'm going to run out and meet you because I care for you and I want to have a relationship with you. That is the very heart of our God, ladies and gentlemen. Amen. Well, Pastor David, I know that God forgives me, but sometimes I just feel judged when I come back into the house of God. I feel such guilt and shame. Believe me when I tell you I know a whole lot about guilt and shame. Guilt is that thing that you feel on the inside because you know that you're guilty. Shame is that weird sense of a stain that you carry on you. It makes you feel like when anyone looks at you, they can tell. Have you ever been talking to someone and you felt like they could tell? And in your shame, what you want to do is you want to run and hide. You want to crawl under a blanket somewhere and never be bothered again. Well, I have a promise verse for you this morning. It's found in Romans 10, 11, and it says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What does that mean? It means you're missing exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross on your behalf. Please understand, Christ doesn't just take away your sin. He takes away your guilt and he takes away your shame as well. And all this time, he has been running after you, even when you've been thinking, but when he finds out what I'm really up to, he's going to turn away from me. But he doesn't. He sees you as a child of his tremendous love. 
And whenever you return, he lavishes you with unconditional love and mercy and forgiveness and every good thing possible. The Bible says he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. He forgives and he forgets it all. He has amnesia when it comes to your past sins. So if you are here today, but you're still a long way off, that, that is a fact. That the fact that you are here tells me that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. And I just want to say to you this morning, come back to Bethel because he is wanting and he is waiting to welcome you home. So first of all, Bethel is a place of welcome. But what else do you find there? Let's go back to Abraham and read Genesis 13 verses 5 through 9. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelled in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. The second thing that you need to know about Bethel is that Bethel is a place of great wisdom. Abraham gets this. He knew that God's promise came with a prohibition. I want to draw your attention back to, to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, when God says these words to Abraham, get out of your country and away from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. What was God's promise to Abraham? I'm giving you the promised land, but in order for you to have this new land, you're going to have to say goodbye to your family. And that includes Lot, who's been hanging around with you for far too long. Now fast forward to chapter 13. We see Abraham at Bethel receiving wisdom. He says, wait a minute, Lord. You mean I can't get into the promised land as long as I have this compromise named Lot in my life? That's right. Compromise costs a lot. And Lot is Abraham's compromise. God is knocking here at Abraham's heart. Listen, I want you to get into the promised land. Then wise up, Abe, it's time for you to let Lot go. He needs to make his own decisions while you need to make your own decisions. And your decision needs to be, as for me and my house, we are gonna serve the Lord. Amen. I don't even think I need to ask this. I think this is very obvious, but there is a daily battle that goes on between your spirit and your flesh. And if you never do anything to strengthen your spirit or what I call my spirit man inside, I will easily give in to the flesh man time and time again. In essence, you allow your, your flesh to, to drive your decision making and your flesh will grow stronger and stronger and because of it, you will continually lose this battle. Let me remind you what I said earlier about types that are found in the word of God. Types are the people and the places that represent to us not just moments in time that, that actually happen, but they are accurate examples of good and evil, of God 
in Satan, of life and death, of of solutions and, and struggles. So with that understanding, Lot represents Abraham's flesh in this story, while Abraham represents his spirit. When Abraham said, please let there not be any strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren, that word strife found in that scripture means to contest or to complain. In other words, there's always going to be contesting and complaining that goes on between your spirit man and your flesh man. Because your flesh wants to do the things that you want to do while your spirit wants you to do the things that God wants you to do. That's the difference between the two. Galatians 5.17 says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So if you don't learn how to win this battle between your flesh and your spirit, if you don't have victory over your flesh, you're gonna be in a battle mode all the time. It is that simple. No one in this place understands this better than your pastor. I know from what I speak, because earlier in my life I had a huge battle with my flesh and the flesh went out every single time. Reminds me of that, sorry, can I talk about a rock and roll star? John Cougar Mellencamp, I fight authority and authority always wins. That's what his song says, I fought my flesh and my flesh always won. I had a stronghold. I had an addiction in my life that I thought I could never be set free from. That was until I submitted my life fully to Jesus. And I began to stand upon the truth that I discovered in God's word. And it was there that I learned the temptations that had overtaken me were common to all men. It wasn't exclusive to me as much as I wanted to believe that. I wasn't being tested any more than any other person walking the face of the earth. So I began to follow my my favorite scripture in the Bible, Romans 12, one and two, and I decided to quit conforming to the world and to begin to transform my mind with the word of God. And it was there, like that verse says, that that I was able to see the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God in my life. I began to realize that I could do all things through Christ who gave me the strength, and I began to lean upon the Holy Spirit's power and not my own pathetic power, because I had none. I began to lean upon the promise that if I were to seek God first and his righteousness, then all of those things that I spent way too much time worrying about in my life would be added unto me naturally. And soon, by feeding my spirit man, my spirit man grew stronger and my flesh man began to weaken. And I wasn't giving in to sin in predictable ways like I had done so many times before. But I found one other thing that really helped me to overcome my battle with my flesh. And it was something we don't talk about much in the church anymore, and I apologize for that, but I'm gonna talk about it today. And it is fasting. I'm going to suggest that you consider fasting because fasting has the ability to change your life. Fasting is to simply refrain or deny your flesh from eating a meal a day or a whole day within a week, or several days within a week, or or whatever it is that you choose to do. This is basic biblical Christianity. 
It's a matter of you and I saying every Tuesday, instead of eating lunch, I'm going to spend that hour in prayer, communing with God. And during that time, when I would typically be feeding my face, I'm going to say no to my flesh, and I'm going to focus on the Lord, and I am going to build my spirit man stronger inside. I want to share with you the biblical application of fasting found in Mark chapter 9. Here we find a dad who is burdened because his son is possessed by a demon, and he brings this boy to Jesus' disciples. Well, the disciples try to cast this demon out, but they can't do anything. Let me read to you from Mark 9, verses 17 through 29. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, this is Jesus talking, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, and this is a powerful statement, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come out, come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. What I am suggesting to you this morning is that fasting could be the very thing you need to take your spiritual journey to an all new level of faith and of strength and of spiritual resolve. Fasting supernaturally proves to you that you can indeed overcome your flesh for a period of time. If, you, if you're continually overcome by temptation or wrong thoughts or worries and fears, if you find yourself regularly submitting to them in your flesh, fasting is something that you should participate in. I read to you Galatians 5.17 about the flesh and the spirit being contrary to one another. But let me read you the verse right before that, Galatians 5.16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When you fast, you starve your your flesh in order to bolster your spirit. And when you do that, it brings empowerment to your spirit. And when your spirit is empowered with the Holy Spirit of the living God, then you begin to walk in the spirit. And when you walk in the spirit, you begin to overcome your flesh. It is that simple. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That right there is just one of of the 
examples of wisdom that you obtain when you come back to Bethel. Do you want to put off experiencing the blessings of God in your life because you won't take the necessary steps to strengthen your spirit? Well, the wisdom of God says this year, I'm not just going to fast a meal, but I'm going to fast a meal or a whole day, or I'm going to fast for several days through the course of a week or maybe even a month to see if God's word is true. Let me remind you of something. If you commit to fasting combined with prayer, because remember, this isn't a diet. This is a, a spiritual exercise. You will be amazed at what God can accomplish in your life. You begin to have victories that you once doubted could ever happen for you. And there's nothing sweeter than living a life of complete victory. That's exactly what God desires for you and I. So the first thing you see at Bethel is that you're welcome. Secondly, you're going to be awakened by God's wisdom. So what else will you find here at Bethel? Look at Genesis 13, 10 through 11. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. The third thing that you need to know about going back to Bethel is Bethel is a place of willingness. Willingness to obey God. When you obey, and you obey, excuse me, by letting these people in your life who are influencing you to stay out of the promised land to move on to go their separate way. Let me say a word to some of our non-married friends here today, which has an application for each one of us. There could be a lot in your life right now who is keeping you out of the promised land. You may be in a romantic relationship with a non-believer. And of course, you desire to see that person saved, right? Well, here's a question for you. How serious do they think your relationship with God really is? Well, if you're not in God's will and there is compromise in your life, then they're not going to think you're all that serious about it. So what you really want for them is to fall in love with the God that you think that you're pretty much living and showing that you're not all that serious about yourself. And though you may hope that they see how serious you are, they won't until you get serious about the God that you say that you're serious about. So I want you to get this serious. Today when you see them, I want you to say to them, here's the deal. I've decided to follow Jesus. And if you're not gonna follow Jesus, then I'm gonna break off this relationship. And they're probably gonna say, wait a minute, You're dumping me over your faith? That's pretty serious. But I will guarantee you something. When you get that serious, they'll get that serious. Problem solved. That's a little advice from your pastor, and it's free of charge. You can't expect to win a love interest to God when you're not serious about God yourself. That's all I'm saying, folks. I would like to say you're unequally yoked when you're, when you're dating or married to a non-believer, but in that case, you've got two unyoked, you've got people who aren't following God, really. 
So you've got two people that are yoked together kind of living the same way. You may think you're living differently than that person is, but if you're not serious with Jesus, you're not. And it's a problem. You see, when Abraham came back to Bethel, the first thing he does is he builds an altar. Why? Well, since Bethel is a place of willingness, then Bethel is naturally a place of sacrifice. He builds an altar and he says, God, what do you want? And God says to him, I want Lot out of your life. He's not going in the same direction that you're going, Abraham. Plus, he's not at all interested in living in the promised land. Now, are you willing to let him go his way and are you willing to go your way, which is the way that I've asked you to go? And Abraham, he finally gets serious. And the separation is so severe, this is how it reads in Genesis 13, 9. Please separate from me. You take the left and then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, then I'm gonna to go to the left. That is the seriousness of Abraham's separation. In essence, he's saying, I wanna be completely in the opposite place where you are. Now, maybe you're thinking, why the altar, Pastor David? Well, Abraham went back to Bethel to build an altar and the purpose of that altar was to sacrifice something on that altar. So in essence, the altar, it alters you. The altar is about your alteration. Can you grasp that? Can you understand that? And it's your alteration that makes you the person that God called you to be. But that's not going to happen until you understand that when you come back, to your Bethel, you are welcomed and there is wisdom to be found there and is a place of willingness. So Abraham decides he's gonna to have to get serious about Lot. Okay, Lot, you go your way and I'm gonna go mine. Because as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And I want you to notice what land old Lot chose here. It's the land near Egypt. It's the green and the lush looking land. And it looks like life is gonna be easy there. And then there's the promised land that Abraham goes to. And it looks like it still has the effects of the famine going on. And it's gonna require great faith on the part of Abraham. So Lot picks the easy way and he heads for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's getting as close to the world as he can get. And please understand this truth today. Lot is doing what naturally comes to the flesh while Abraham is doing what supernaturally comes from the spirit. Now that you're going this way, Abraham says, I will go in the opposite way. And deep in my heart, I do this because I know God is testing me. You see, whenever you go back to Bethel, and there's an altar, please recognize it is a test. How important is your family and your friends? Who comes first in your life? It's only a few chapters later that Abraham will be asked again to forsake family. So this is the first test preparing him for another test where the sacrifice will be even greater. Most of you know this story. Later on in Genesis 22, verses one and two, it says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. 
and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What's this all about? Well, God says, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 13, I'm testing you. Do I come first or does your nephew Lot come first? And it's important to know the answer to that question because you are going to be the father of the faith, Abraham. And it's going to be the ultimate example for when you get to chapter 22, when you take your only son and you offer him on the same piece of property that I will offer my own son many years from now. Abraham, you must trust me. You must be a man of faith. And for today, let's start with lot. You know, many of us have a lot in our life. Not a lot, a lot in our life. It's someone or something or a family member or a relationship that holds you back from the promises of God. Can I remind you of these difficult words from Jesus in Luke 14, 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The word hate in that verse simply means to love less. But the implications are still very clear. God calls you to do something. He says, it's time for you to fulfill your calling. And you say, uh, I can't do that, God, because I have my family and it takes all of my energy and focus away from my family and my family comes first. Or God knocks on your heart and, and he says, I want you to do this thing for me. And you say, I can't do this because I'm in business with my father and my father doesn't know you or even care about you. Listen, God, I know you have plans for me, but I, I'm going to be following in my father's footsteps. Here's my point. There has to come a point when you get serious about what matters most in life and who you really want to worship and who you really want to follow and who you really want to serve. God puts the press here on Abraham and he says, let's start with Lot and we'll end with your son Isaac. But Abraham, do the right thing. Really, Pastor David? Really, you are, you are teaching me to put God first before my family? Let me share with you something about that. Do you know that when I put God first, the first thing he tells me to do is to love my wife as Christ loved the church? Do you know when I put God first, he tells me to honor my fa father and mother? And do you know when I put God first, he tells me to raise my children in the way that they should go, and when they grow older, they will not depart from it? It's hard comprehending this, but it is a great truth for us to live by. When we put him first, we are filled with the resources and the power needed to do those other things better than we ever could have before we put God first. Do you get this? But if you continue to say, well, my husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or kids mean more to me than anything else, even more to me than you, God, then you'll never have that kind of a relationship that you hoped to have with God. 
and you'll never be able to love your loved ones with the capacity that you could if you put God first. It is as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. Scott, will you and the worship team please come up and help me to close this down. So Abraham comes back to Bethel, a place of welcome, a place of wisdom, a place where there's a willingness to sacrifice. And how does this all conclude? Look at Genesis 13, 12 through 18. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from you, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants would also, could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land, through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Mamre means better. Hebron means friendship. Can you see that Abraham is moving into a better friendship? God says, say goodbye to Lot, I know you thought that was the best relationship and friendship you had going, but there is a better relationship to be found. If you'll let Lot go, and if you will follow my direction, come back to Bethel, Abraham. It's a place of welcome. It is a place of wisdom. And it's a place where there is a willingness to sacrifice. But church, there's one last thing you need to know about Bethel. Bethel is also the place of witness a witness of the goodness of God. And now God, the keeper of his promises says, you just said goodbye to Lot, didn't you? And Abraham says, yes, I did, Lord. And I'm now wondering if your promises are true. And God says, just look around you, the north, south, east, and west. This is all yours. Now start walking in this land because the land that I promised you, I have given you. And Abraham starts possessing the promised land because he was determined to do the right thing. But he also received a better friendship. And in that friendship, it is that friendship, ladies and gentlemen, that so many in our city and our world are missing this morning. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why people fear this kind of a life because it is truly the best life. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. Today, God is calling people back to Bethel. He is calling you back into a meaningful and fulfilling relationship with him. There are some here today or some who are watching us online and you've lost sight of everything that God has done in your life and you've become casual and you've become wimpy in your faith. And for some, there just isn't really any faith at all. You're just going through the motions for some reason. You have no sense of belonging and you're simply wandering your days away. You've got lots in your life 
and they are keeping you from living the blessed life. And God is saying to you this morning, send Lot on his way and watch what I can accomplish in and through you. There are others here today and you feel like you can't go back to Bethel because you're stained. You're carrying around some shame. You doubt that God would want to have you this morning. If you've learned anything I've said today, please let it be that God loves you. He wants, he longs to have a relationship with you once again. He wants you to talk with you daily. He wants to direct your steps every single day and to help you in your battle against your flesh like he did me, to help to empower you in your spirit, man. He's standing and he's looking out over the horizon and he's hoping you'll come home so he can give you the love and the acceptance and the hope for a greater future. And speaking of a future, there are parents here today and your actions or inactions toward a meaningful relationship with Jesus will affect your children's future. And when you finally eliminate whatever the lot is in your life, you will start to live the blessed life that you truly desire and you will set a strong example for your children to follow. So I'd like to open this altar this morning to anyone who would like to come up here and pray. You may have some kind of a need, but you know, it doesn't really matter what you come down here for. It's who you meet when you come down to this altar. You meet the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who longs to have a relationship with you. He is the one with all the power. He is the one who can change your life and your circumstances and your direction. He is the one who can heal or change your situation. But you gotta ask, it's time for you to go back to Bethel, where you are welcome, where there is, will, where there is wisdom, where there is a willingness, and where it becomes a place of witness for you. While the worship team sings, let's spend some time in prayer at this altar. Allow him to transform not just your life, but your circumstances that you're currently in. And let's get rid of some lots in our life this morning. While those at the altar uh, continue to pray, they can stay here as long as they want to stay here and pray. I'd like you to bow your heads. We will close this service in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word as always. We thank you for the types and the examples found in your word that we can so relate to. Maybe a different place and time and totally different circumstances, but the principles are always the same. And that principle is to be faithful and to serve you in spirit and in truth and worship you in that same way and allow you to make the decisions in our lives and that we would go in the directions that you send us and not in the direction that our flesh wants to go. Father, help us with this battle of our flesh versus our spirit. Allow our spirit to be strengthened to overcome our flesh every single time. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Sometimes our flesh wins out, but your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness is always there for us. Let us always know that we can come back to Bethel at any time. There's nothing we can do that will separate us from the love of God. Let us be reminded of that. Let us stand confidently in that. Father, I stand and rebuke shame in the name of Jesus, shame and guilt. I, I, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. I ask you to leave the heart of anyone in this place that is carrying it around today. Father, I ask that you do a work in our lives, that you would show us what it means to be fully obedient to you 
and the things that you ask us to do. So thank you. I pray for my church family, each and every one of them, Lord, that they would become stronger each and every day in their faith. And they would come to realize and believe that there is nothing that you cannot accomplish through them. So Lord, as we go our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing the steps we take, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear anyone down. Father, I pray that we would shine like bright lights because our world is very dark and it needs the brightness of the love of Jesus Christ. So let us shine brightly among those around us. And Father, I pray that uh, you would keep us safe until we meet together again. Keep us safe from sickness or illness. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come back together again whole as a church family and worship you in spirit and truth. I thank you for this day. I thank you for this service. I thank you for the presence of your spirit here in and among us today. As we go our way today, Father, let us go in love and love those who are difficult to love as you would. And I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for being here.